This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to totally depart from the historical theme and recommend The Hobbit, there and back again. The last of the movies just came out in the U.S. this last week, and while it was decent enough as spectacle, I suppose, I can't help but feel that something was lost from the original tale of an ordinary man with no particular aspiration for adventure who is a hero precisely because of how seemingly ordinary his goals are. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 83, Reform Without Sanctuary. This week, we're going to take on one of the more popular political figures of modern Japan. He made his career as a political maverick who would break down the old system and move Japan into a better and brighter future. In some ways, he succeeded and remains one of the better regarded prime ministers in the last few decades. Not that that's saying very much. On the other hand, his reforms have proven to have little life without him, and though he still lives, it seems that much of the energy which drove him to try and reform Japan is now gone. Koizumi Junichiro was born on January 8, 1942, in Yokosuka, to the south of Tokyo. He was born into a political dynasty. His father, Koizumi Junya, was a diet member who joined the old Minseto party in 1937. His grandfather, Koizumi Matajiro, was a member of the predecessor to the Minseto, the Doshikai. If you have trouble keeping all of these parties straight, just think of it this way. In the pre-war period, leaving aside the hard-right parties and the Marxists, there are essentially two political parties, the Seiyukai, backed by a rural constituency, and the not-Seiyukai, which kept changing its name and was backed by mostly an urban constituency. The Koizumi family was part of the latter, Koizumi Matajiro, by the way, had the totally awesome nickname Irezumi Minister, Irezumi being the type of tattoos associated with the Yakuza, or Japan's organized crime syndicates. In particular, his was a back tattoo of a giant red dragon, and the fact that he had it led credence to the idea that he was in some way affiliated with the Yakuza, though I can't find definitive evidence one way or the other. Either way, it appears that being something of a rebel runs in the family. Anyway, Koizumi Junichiro lived a fairly privileged life from the get-go. After graduating high school, he attended Keio University in Tokyo, the same school as Ozawa Ichiro. Pretty much anyone important in Japanese politics tends to be a graduate of one of Japan's academic trifecta, Tokyo, Keio, or Waseda Universities, with a few folks from institutions a step or two down the ladder. The only major exception that I know of was Tanaka Kakue, 
who for all of his many, many faults was genuinely a man of the people. After graduating from Keio with a degree in economics in 1967, Koizumi moved to the UK and began studying at University College London, continuing postgraduate work in economics. He never finished his degree, however, since in August 1969 his father Koizumi Jr. passed away. Just like Ozawa Ichiro, and in the same year to boot, Koizumi stepped into his father's shoes and ran for office as a representative of his father's party, the Liberal Democratic Party. Unlike Ozawa Ichiro, however, he lost. However, this did not deter him from a career in politics. Instead, he attached himself to one of the major internal factions in the LDP in order to get the backing he would need to try again. He chose Fukuda Takeo as his patron and served as Fukuda's secretary starting in 1970. Apparently, Fukuda was impressed because he backed Koizumi in the 1972 elections, and as a result, Koizumi officially became the representative for the 11th district of Kanagawa in 1972. Apparently, the alliance was not one of pure political convenience, and the two men actually liked each other. When Koizumi married his first and only wife, Miyamoto Kayoko, in 1978, Fukuda Takeo was his best man. His marriage incidentally broke down in 1982 while she was pregnant with his third son. We'll discuss his family life later on, along with the ramifications of the divorce. It's worth noting, though, that his unmarried status was and is unusual for a Japanese politician, as is the fact that he's openly admitted to spending a great deal of time and money at hostess bars. If you're not familiar with the concept, they're bars staffed primarily by female employees, whose job it is to socialize with the clients and encourage them to stay and spend money. They're not brothels per se, though hostesses are encouraged to go on dates, with particularly spendy customers, to ensure that they regularly visit the place, and during these dates, some hostesses do have sex with their clients. So, all in all, not the classiest of establishments. Anyway, while this alliance was useful, it was not without problems. Fukuda Takeo was not universally beloved, and in particular, he had one major rival, Tanaka Kakue. Yes, that same ludicrously corrupt Tanaka Kakue who we've all come to know and love. Kakue also held the reins of power, directly or indirectly, until 1985, and the alliance of his subordinates who ousted him, Ozawa, Kanemaru Shin, and Takeshita Noboru, as we discussed last week, held on to them until the 1990s. So, the first two decades of Koizumi Junichiro's career were relatively undistinguished. He served, and he legislated, and he won election after election in his district, but in those 20 years he picked up all of two cabinet appointments, which are the real route to power, one of which was as a vice minister rather than a full minister. His real break came in the 1990s, when his growing seniority within the party, combined with the massive scandals of the early 90s, opened up some room at the top. In particular, after the LDP was swept out of power in 1992, helped by the economic crisis, political scandals, and Ozawa Ichiro's defection from the party, Koizumi was able to use the shakeup to begin assembling a more reform-oriented group of politicians around himself. In particular, he allied himself with Kato Koichi and Yamasaki Taku, a pair of reform-minded politicians from the left wing of the LDP. 
the trio of Yamasaki, Kato, and Koizumi, and the political network they built around themselves became known as the YKK Group, in reference to the Japanese zipper manufacturing company. He also began reaching out to members of other parties, working closely with the ex-socialist Prime Minister Hosokawa Morihiro, as well as some of the smaller political parties to find issues of agreement they could build political coalitions around. The alliance with Hosokawa proved particularly useful. As a socialist, Hosokawa remained popular and welcome in China, even when that country's public opinion began to turn against Japan, so Koizumi could and did use him as a backroom go-between with the Chinese government to work out outstanding issues. The LDP limped back to power after the implosion of the Socialist Governing Coalition in 1994, the actual elections not happening until 1995. The return of the LDP in 1995 also marked the first time Koizumi would run for the position of president of the party, which, if he got it, would make him prime minister, since the prime minister in a parliamentary system is the head of the largest political party in the government. He lost, and lost again when he ran in 1998. As yet, his network of allies remained too small and divided to propel him to the top. However, in 2001 he ran yet again, and this time things were stacked more in his favor. In particular, he managed to assume sole control of the alliance of left-leaning LDP members under the banner of the YKK group. Kato and Yamasaki had been brutally undercut by Koizumi only a year earlier, when they attempted a vote of no confidence against the then-sitting Prime Minister. Koizumi had abruptly refused to help them, and instead threw his influence the other way, causing the vote to fail and Kato and Yamasaki to be humiliated. Now, as a result, Koizumi was both without competitors from his wing of the party and possessive supporters in the camp of the former Prime Minister. As a result, in April 2001, he won the vote to become President of the LDP, and thus Prime Minister of Japan, by a pretty hefty margin. So, who is this man who's now the most powerful person in Japan? Well, the image Koizumi has always cultivated of himself is that of the political outsider. He's always pushed the idea that he's a maverick politician, a phrase considered somewhat laughable in the U.S. thanks to the 2008 presidential election, but one which genuinely does seem to apply here. He certainly is not a traditional Japanese politician. In particular, Koizumi's stated goal was to shake up the LDP by replacing its dinosaur leadership with younger and more dynamic faces. He was certainly successful in marginalizing a lot of those dinosaurs, chief among them one of his early backers, former Prime Minister Nakasone Yasuhiro, who you may recall from the Unnatural Intimacy series as the guy who was good friends with Reagan and promised Japan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier to the U.S. So how was Koizumi able to go about pushing around these senior politicians when in theory they should be much better connected and able to outmaneuver him? Well, Koizumi had something they did not. Popularity. Japanese people seemed to genuinely like him, both because he promised change, and unlike other politicians who did so, actually did change some things, and because he was just unusual and pretty damn cool for a Japanese politician. As a result, he could always threaten to call snap elections if presented with an impasse. He could then go into the elections with the platform of, these people are obstructing my attempts to reform the system, and be reasonably sure that he would win. 
In fact, in 2004, he'll do exactly that. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway, as we've mentioned, he's also a bit scandal-prone for a Japanese politician, and not in the usual sense either. Japanese politicians traditionally get involved in corruption or bribery scandals, Tanaka Kakue having begun that illustrious tradition, but Koizumi Junichiro had personal scandals. His string of mistresses after divorcing his wife was one source of them. To be sure, he was far from the first Japanese politician to, shall we say, sow his wild oats far and wide, Ito Hirabumi having begun that illustrious tradition, but he was unusual in being fairly open about it. The most famous of these scandals occurred in 1991, when his favorite geisha committed suicide, supposedly, though this is not proven, because Koizumi refused to marry her. Koizumi retained custody of his two eldest children, Kotaro, who is an actor, and Shinjiro, who entered the family business of politics, and has not let their birth mother see them since the divorce. She was actually pregnant with a third son, Miyamoto Yoshinaga, at the time of the divorce. Koizumi has never met the boy, and apparently the boy has been rebuffed every time he's tried to meet his father. So, something of a messy family life, then. Now, I point all this out because, A, who doesn't enjoy salacious political gossip, and, B, in the United States, this type of family scandal would be enough to kill someone's career. In Japan, it's unusual, to be sure, but it's not career-ending unusual. That, to me, is incredibly interesting. I do wonder sometimes in the United States if we miss out on really talented leaders specifically because we are so sensitive to private scandal. Certainly we would have missed out on Koizumi Junichiro. So, all in all, a pretty unusual man for Japanese politics. But what kind of policies would he pursue now that he was in office? Well, let's start abroad and work our way in. In foreign policy terms, perhaps the defining moment of Koizumi's time in office came only five months after he was put in charge, on September 11, 2001. After the attacks on New York and Washington, D.C., Koizumi actively supported American efforts in the general war on terror, as well as, for better or worse, the specific American campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq. His desire to take on a more active role in foreign policy and support the United States was met with some pushback, but between his own popularity and pressure from the U.S., he was able to get his way. Japanese ground troops were never put in combat, but they worked behind the lines on reconstruction efforts, and Japanese ships handled some of the logistic work for the U.S. in the Indian Ocean. Americans often tend to discount these contributions, but they do matter, and they certainly proved controversial in Japan. Still, Koizumi let the cat out of the bag. Once he established the ability to send the self-defense forces abroad, future leaders became far more willing to do so as well. Closer to home, Koizumi did work for closer ties with China and South Korea, though as we'll discuss in a bit, his domestic policies undercut that to a large degree. He continued, against the advice of some of his colleagues, to support the Asian Women's Fund, the mixed public-private foundation which paid reparations to former comfort women. He also issued six separate public apologies for actions taken under the Japanese Empire. I'll link to each of the instances on the WordPress page. He also had to deal with a rather serious scandal involving North Korea. 
During his tenure, it came to light that North Korean agents had kidnapped several Japanese citizens in the 1970s in order to train their own spies. Koizumi responded forcefully in attempts to get those citizens returned to Japan. The tale is fascinating and involved, and tragically we don't have that much time for it here, but the short version is that Koizumi did succeed in getting some of the kidnapped Japanese repatriated, though the issue lingers to this day. On the domestic front, Koizumi pushed three agendas. Nationalism, deregulation, and privatization. The nationalism one proved to be his most controversial. Back in 2001, when he was campaigning among the people to become prime minister, not that he was directly elected, but it never hurts to be popular, he made promises to visit Yasukuni Shrine if selected as prime minister. Visits to Yasukuni have always been controversial, particularly after the authorities decided, without any prodding from the government, it should be noted, to enshrine 14 Class A war criminals there in 1978. Several Class B and C criminals had already been enshrined, that is, those involved in the execution, not the planning of war crimes. Koizumi was not the first prime minister to visit after the enshrinement of the war criminals. That dubious honor belongs to Nakasone Yasuhiro. However, in the time since Nakasone's visit in 1985, nationalist sentiment wrapped up in a history of patriotic resistance to Japan had begun to spread through South Korea and China, particularly in China as part of a drive for a new patriotic education. As a result, the outcry from Japan's neighbors regarding Koizumi's visit was extremely loud. He would visit the shrine six times during his five-year tenure as prime minister, and each time there would be an outcry both from the Japanese left and from Japan's neighbors in South Korea and China, who accused Koizumi of forgetting or whitewashing Japan's militaristic past. Koizumi, in turn, insisted that his visits were solely to honor the war dead for their sacrifice, and not to promote militaristic agendas. He even made several statements to the effect that Japan should never again take the path of war. That wasn't enough, though, and from the time of his first visits, relations with South Korea and China remained extremely tense, until his departure from office. Deregulation and privatization, meanwhile, should probably be taken together. Koizumi, you see, had a plan to revive Japan's faltering economy, and that plan was simply to try and loosen regulations to change it into something closer to the American economy. This was best evinced by his campaign slogan, Seiiki Naki Kaikaku, or Reform Without Sanctuaries. Nothing was off the table. Koizumi pushed to remove government regulations from many industries and privatize others that were joint public-private ventures. He also pushed hard to divest the government of non-performing loans, assets which had been used to prop up bankrupt firms, the so-called zombie firms which had lost too much money to remain viable in the 1990s, but were propped up by injections of government cash to avoid job loss and social disruption. However, the reform he's best known for is the privatization of the postal system. Now, this is something that might confuse a lot of Americans, but it's important to note that at this time, the Japan Post was the world's largest bank thanks to Japan's massive postal savings system. We talked about this way back during the episodes on Tanaka Kakue. You see how he's so important? He keeps cropping up all the time when we talk about post-war Japan. Here's a quick refresher. 
Funds deposited in the postal banking system had a solid interest rate and were government-backed, so a lot of people used the postal bank for their savings. The government used this in turn as a cheap source of development loans. They'd finance development and infrastructure projects with the savings accounts. Tanaka Kakue, however, used the money to finance unprofitable pork barrel projects, which is part of why his successors found the country to be in increasingly worse debt. Now they had to pay off all the money Tanaka Kakue had spent on non-performing pork barrel projects, designed purely to get him re-elected. I suppose this is a classic example of never pay the bill yourself if someone else can pay it for you. Koizumi was determined to undo this system, with all its potential for corruption in the Kakue-esque model. Instead, he wanted to privatize the whole system and break it up into four companies— an insurance company, a bank, the postal service, and a fourth company which would manage actual physical storefronts for the other three. The bill met with massive pushback from Ozawa Ichiro's Democratic Party of Japan, as well as from less reform-minded members of the LDP itself. When Koizumi's bill doing all this actually went to the Diet in 2004, it barely passed the lower house, with several LDP members defecting to vote against it, and failed to pass the upper house. However, instead of accepting defeat, Koizumi called in new elections for 2005, and began drawing on that great wellspring of popularity he could count on. He began campaigning among the people on the idea that the 2005 election was a referendum between reform and business as usual. The tactic worked wonders. The LDP members who had turned against him were expelled from the party and most lost their seats. The new legislators Koizumi backed to replace them won most of their races. Koizumi's children, as they were called, would be his most loyal supporters in the diet of all his reform efforts. Meanwhile, Ozawa Ichiro and the DPJ got shellacked in the elections, and Koizumi was able to sail the privatization bill through the diet the next year. Now, all of this deregulation and privatization have led some folks to label Koizumi as a neoliberal someone in favor of extremely small government and massive deregulation. From a Japanese standpoint, I can see how you'd get there. From an American standpoint, though, in our political system, this level of reform would be considered fairly moderate. It's all relative to where you sit, I suppose. Certainly, the reform made political sense. The traditional constituency the LDP relied on to get elected was rural, but by the 2000s, the rural constituency was shrinking rapidly. Instead, Koizumi was able to shift the LDP platform into something more reformist and neoliberal in order to pick up a solid urban constituency. In 2006, his second term as president of the LDP expired. He declared that he would follow the rules and step down, and furthermore that he would not nominate a successor to replace him. Instead, the LDP would have to do that itself. After one last visit to Yasukuni as Prime Minister, on August 15th, the anniversary of Japan's surrender, no less, Koizumi stepped down on September 26, 2006. His five years in office made him Japan's fifth-longest-serving Prime Minister, and he left a very popular man. His reformist work, however, did not continue long after his departure he was followed in office by a series of weak leaders, the last of whom, Aso Taro, 
bungled his job so badly that he and the LDP were swept out of power in a landslide victory for Ozawa Ichiro's DPJ. That same victory, by the way, saw most of Koizumi's children in the Diet lose their jobs. While Koizumi Junichiro's domestic work has not been undone, and since the return of the LDP in 2012, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo has done a lot to carry the more aggressive foreign policy forward, no other domestic reforms on the scale of postal privatization have been suggested or taken seriously. Indeed, Abe Shinzo's economic policy, Abenomics as it's often called, in many ways resembles the old interventionist policies of the 1980s and 1990s, rather than an attempt at providing a market genuinely free of government interference. By the way, just to point this out, I'm not taking sides in the ongoing religious war between free marketers and interventionists. Each side has its place in an intelligent economic policy. Anyway, as a final coda to all of this, Koizumi may have been a reformist, but there was one practice he was not prepared to reform. After his retirement from politics in 2009, he handed over his political machine to his second oldest son, Koizumi Shinjiro. Nowadays, Koizumi Junichiro lives as a private citizen and only occasionally makes forays into politics. For example, after the nuclear problems at Fukushima, he became an advocate against the expansion of nuclear power. In 2014, he did work with his old friend, former socialist prime minister Hoso Kawamori Hiro, on a bid for the spot of mayor of Tokyo, running on an anti-nuclear platform opposed to the pro-nuclear stance of Prime Minister Abe and the LDP. However, the Hosokawa Koizumi alliance lost the race quite badly. Koizumi also remains something of a pop culture figure, a trend best exemplified by quite possibly the best and most ludicrous anime ever made, Mudazumo Naki Kaikaku, usually subtitled in the West as The Legend of Koizumi. I'll post some links to it on the Facebook and WordPress pages. Suffice it to say that it's the best anime about politics and mahjong that you'll ever see. So, what is the legacy of Japan's most stylish prime minister? Well, regardless of whether you agree with his policies or not, it's indisputable that Koizumi Junichiro had a vision for Japan's future. He had a real plan to remake the country. He had a vision for where Japan should go. In many ways, no one has had a real plan for what Japan's focus as a country should be, or where it should go, since the 1980s. Certainly no one in power before Koizumi was able to articulate such a plan. He should, I think, be thought of as a man with a vision for Japan's future. That vision has since been rejected by both mainstream parties, but no one has ever articulated anything convincing to replace it. Whether or not they do, I suppose, we'll see in 2015. That's all for this week. Special thanks this week to my dad for donating to support the show. I'm glad you like it, and I promise I'll do more episodes about baseball as soon as I can. I'd also like to take this opportunity, our last show for 2014, to thank again everyone who's donated to support the podcast. I really can't say how much I appreciate it. Thank you so much. To join them... For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening. There will be no new episode next week, as I'm taking the week off to celebrate New Year's with my family, 
So we'll be back in two weeks' time with the first part of a multi-part series on the history of Shinto. Thank you all for listening. It's been a really fun year, and I'll see you all in 2015.